No one will be admitted after the guests check in. Nipples on my toes, on the feet of my bros. We're having a good time, and nobody knows. I'm feeling right tonight. I'm feeling oh okay, feeling real good. I did a ton of yay, a lot more than a gram, more like an eight ball. Sam, I snorted it all night. Did what I do right. You got your notes? You ready? Ready, ready, ready. Welcome to Motel Hell. Motel. I'm Ben the Bearded Daddy. And I'm Disco Dicko the Fetty Crippo. I mean, you're... You're crippled or... That you're part of a gang? I don't want to be gang affiliated. I'm a gang of one. Wolf, wolf crew, wolf crew, awooga! Let me see those gazongas. Motel hell in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking the other day on one of our intros, it was like, are we turning into shock jocks? Is this like <laughs> bees buzz and the fart daddies? Or I mean, it's got to come back around at some point, right? It has to. No one really listens to that shit anymore, right? They don't listen to this shit either. So. But, um, yeah, I apologize. Last two episodes, we had a little bit of a, I don't know if it's a cord issue or the the mic. I got to try a new cord first. But there's a little bit of an electrical buzz that I tried to filter out, but you may notice it. So we apologize. I think I've gotten it fixed for this episode, but we will find out. I have no idea what you're talking about. Cool. I listened to the episode, and it sounded great. Thanks. Both of them. Thank you. Especially my parts. We're back again to talk about Shinya Tsukamoto, and I could not be more excited. It's true. He's visibly erect. Yeah. Our primary research comes from Iron Man, The Cinema of Shinya Tsukamoto by Tom Mez, published Fab Press 2005, but also watching the movies is our other resource, so... Which is pretty great. Yeah. I have to say, awesome. So, yeah, uh... We will move our movie review until later in the episode when we talk about one of the movies that we watched in Yasuka Moto film, Bullet Ballet, but that's not going to come up for about five movies, so you'll have to wait on that. I'm sure your breath is baited and waited. Yes. Just wait till we talk about Bullet Ballet, or as I like to call it, BLT. Yeah. So we left off last time with The Adventures of Jinshu Kozo 1 at the PIA Film Festival in early 1988 and won the grand prize for that festival. And essentially, Shinya was on the cusp of his big success as far as black and white, 60-some minute cult hits go, revolving around Tetsuo and Iron Men. (laughs) I'm wearing one of my 7H Target Tetsuo shirts tonight in honor, 
And I masturbated earlier to shots from Sets of the Iron Man, so I am... Did you actually? Feeling it. No, sadly, I didn't have time to beat it, but... Now I, I feel lied to. Please go on. <laughs> I'm half-cocked right now. So, the other thing I'm going to say is we're going to try to get through as much as we can tonight, but in doing the research, I just took a shitload of notes. And there's so much to say... And I do not want to make these episodes longer than two hours, so hopefully they won't be. And if we have to make this a four-part series, then we will take a break between parts three and four. You can't come... stop us. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's true. But also, we'll come back and we, we want to give the listeners a break and also have enough time to really delve into the late section of uh, Sukumoto's ouvoir with some knowledge and, and actual experience watching the later films. So Tetsuo the Iron Man, 1989, 67 minutes, 16 millimeter, black and white. Never heard of it. <laughs> so the first thing to note is that uh, Shinya upgraded from his 8 millimeter filming to 16 millimeter, influenced by seeing the experimental films of Derek Jarman, who did both 8 millimeter and 16 millimeter films. But he saw this this guy's stuff in theater, and he noticed that. With 16mm film, they could get such interesting blown-up grain and, and texture on the film itself, the way it looked. And so he wanted to do that, so he, he invested $2,000 in a Canon Scoopic 16mm camera. Scoopic! Scoopic! We are <laughs> we are turning into disc jockeys. It's, just, it's real bad. And uh, they started filming essentially as soon as they finished in Shukozo. And this was partially because... Kei Fujiwara and her husband's home were already filled with all their crap and they were kind of on a creative role and this was essentially an expansion of the Phantom of Regular Size which we talked about before which is basically just like a miniature version of this film. Tetsuo, yeah. yeah. So he wanted it to Shinya wanted it to be 30 minutes originally and but he also wanted to do a theatrical release and nobody was going to put it in the theaters if it was only 30 minutes so he had to to sort of build it up and decided to go longer with it. So the cast is as follows. Tomoro Toguchi, who was in the stuff leading up to this, plays the salaryman, a.k.a. Tetsuo. Um, he had joined in during the theater days, but would continue with many of the first half of Tsukamoto's films. He's in like almost every one of them, at least in some bit part. And a lot of his actors, kind of like Takashi Miike, who reuses a lot of the same people over and over, uh, is loyal to the people that work with him, and a lot of the people that work with him are loyal, although he also has a lot of turnover because he's a little brutal to work for. Yeah. So Kei Fujiwara uh, plays uh, Taguchi's girlfriend, um, and she doesn't have a name. She's just the girlfriend. There's a drill penis. We'll get there. <laughs> so she herself and her husband hosted the crew again at their house and they shot at the house they shot at the abandoned house next door they ca she cared deeply about the film and butted heads with Tsukamoto throughout it but as a result of their fierce arguments but also Tsukamoto's trust in her she got credits as assistant director costume designer and second director of photography and he was, she was one of the only people he trusted with the camera and to do so much of the stuff that otherwise he was pretty controlling about. And while they butted heads a lot and there were like regular screaming matches that made it pretty miserable for her husband and everybody else who was living at their house, 
uh, it helped into creating Tetsuo into something better than any one man could have done by himself. And as of 2005, when the book was written, following the completion of this film, they had not spoken to each other since. Not that they left on necessarily bad terms, but just... Not super good terms. Well, just like they had their own creative arcs and were going to have to go separate ways. We talked about the film Organ in the past. I think we watched that that a couple months ago and reviewed it on the podcast. So her production company slash theater troupe that she created after the completion of Tetsuo was called Organ Vital. And the first movie, Organ, was based on one of the plays that they performed, much like Denshu Kozo was one of the plays that the Kaiju Theater performed and then turned it into a movie. Most of the people in that movie, Organ, were from the theater troupe, and it's it's a very similar kind of thing that she did, uh, as Shinya Tsukamoto did with Denju Kozo and Tetsuo the Iron Man. Cool. She also did one other movie called Id, or ID, which was billed as the sequel to Organ, but really is has a lot of thematic similarities, but also is very different. I haven't seen it. It's supposed to be even fucking weirder, and I think it's... I mean, they're going to like it, or it's going to just be too weird, but I haven't seen it yet, so... We should rewatch Organ before I go for the big stab. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah, I like Organ. I've now seen twice, three times, and each time I watch it, I like it more than the last. So, it's a weird one. Yeah, it's like me getting blowjobs from you. It's every time it gets better. Right. So, Shinya Tsukamoto plays the metal fetishist, a.k.a. Guy, a.k.a. Yatsu, as he's referred to just in the Japanese version, which is just like, the guy. So, Yatsu! Yeah. The guy. And then Nobu Kanaoka, who was the woman who attacks... The salary man in Phantom of Regular Size, she's back as the woman who attacks the salary man in Tetsuo the Iron Man. And she's a woman in glasses, because <laughs> she has glasses. Glasses, on. and she's a woman. Yeah. And as we previously mentioned, she was an early convert. She was attracted to Shinya Tsukamoto before he started Kaiju Theater, back when it was the. The name is escaping me, but his original theater troupe, which they eventually developed into Kaiju Theater. So it's Kaiju something or other. Uh, Naomasa Musaka is the doctor who was a relatively unknown actor at the time but would become more well-known and become a director and do a bunch of stuff. And then Renji Ishibashi is the tramp who's only in the movie very briefly but he's the guy who's in outrage, who gets his mouth fucked up. He's the dude who's in audition. He's in like a bunch of shit. And I was like, how did I never realize that he was in... I've seen... Tetsuo the Iron Man like 10 times and... Because he's a very small part it, of it. I, it was just funny because like the the first like three times I watched this movie I was trashed and like I don't even... It's all like a blur but every time I watch it like my brain just stops being critical and it like turns into... I don't know how to describe it. It's like an out of body experience watching this movie for me so... Anyways he was super famous and he did a lot of uh, bizarre... Well, some, like, avant-theater stuff, and Shinya Tsukamoto had written him a big fan letter before they started filming, and so it was pretty easy to convince him, because he knew who Shinya Tsukamoto was, and as a result of the fan letter, and basically you can flatter your way into getting actors from time to time. So the other thing I want to say, just generally for the episode, what I intend to do is talk about the specifics of the making of the film, the actors involved, all the sort of nexus of how this was going on, and then... We'll give impressions, but don't think of this as like a full-on critique or interpretation of any of the films, because 
first of all, I generally hate most people's interpretations of anything. Like, I don't want to read them, especially if you've not seen most of Shinya Tsukamoto's work. Like, I, I want to avoid tainting your perspective going into it. Like, make draw your own conclusions, take what you want from the films. I'm not going to force-feed that on anybody. I will talk about them and, like, how I feel about them generally and whether I like them and what I like about them and that kind of stuff. But I want to I wanna talk about more of the stuff you wouldn't know like, you can watch it and make your own impression. That doesn't require anything, but I, I, I hope to give you, the listeners, information that you wouldn't get unless you read this book, watched the interviews, watched the behind-the-scenes stuff, all that kind of thing. We aren't film critics. We're here to give you the straight poop. Yeah, I mean, we could be film critics, but I don't want to be. So. Yeah, I mean, we are super intelligent, super good at stuff. So. Yeah, and I can be wildly pretentious if it calls for it, so. Can you? I have no idea. Yeah, I bet. So the Tetsuo costume itself grew each day. Basically, they would, as people would be walking to the house or, or just walking around generally, like their, their part of their routine was collecting scrap from outside electronic shops and dumpsters and recycling areas and whatever, and they would just like take circuit board and metal and pipe and rubber and anything that could work for the costume. And originally, they just would like... It, put adhesive tape on the pieces and then just like shove them onto Taguchi's face and by the end of like each day of filming they would take hours it was like Jim Carrey's Grinch costume except for awesome and <laughs> it would take hours and hours and hours and then they would film for like you know an hour or something insignificant and then they'd have to rip it all off of his face and, and none it was, of it was fake so I'm sure it was awful yeah it was incredibly heavy by the time that they finished like the final version of the costume he couldn't even get up it was just like okay we might have overdone it and so what Tsukamoto did to alleviate this growing issue in complexity was he did a lot of close-up shots that would be used early in the film when you see like the early flashes of what the full-on Tetsuo Iron Man transformation looks like. Right. So that basically your brain holds onto that image and then when you see him later and it's less detailed, your brain fills in the details for you. And they also developed eventually like a jumpsuit that he would basically just get into that was essentially a kaiju costume. And uh, that was much easier and they didn't have to rip shit on and off of his skin. Taguchi talks about how they would distract him and then they would just rip some piece off from him. <laughs> like, oh my god! And they just did that day in and day out. And one of the big things for him was that he did not stay at Kei Fujiwara's house unlike the rest of the actors in the the crew for the most part like he he was like i'm living separate i'll come every single day but i am not gonna fucking live here with you psychopaths like shinya i love you but like come on my guy and so as a result he was the last person involved in the film when everybody else had had left it was it was just him and uh sukimoto so the other thing that they used too for the costume i thought was interesting was they started collecting a bunch of rubber and they found that rubber would have like that shininess on the one side and the rougher edge on the other. So they would use the shiny black side and then spray paint the other side silver and stuff to make it look like metal to make it more movable. And, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So especially when you look at like the later scenes of like all like the world being taken over by metal and all that kind of stop motiony stuff, a lot of that was rubber and abandoned factory shots and all this wildness. So special mention to the drill penis. Special mention. That should be the name of this episode. Could be. So, well, prior to the drill penis, I want to just talk really quickly about the first time I watched this film, I watched it by myself, either coming off of DXM or drunk, probably both. And Yikes. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it was real good. I was like, this this movie's amazing. And then I went to show it to Ace. 
And this was back when Wee Slush was more sensitive to sex and sexual violence in films. She had a period where she just wasn't about it, and that's like her own thing, whatever. But there's a scene where Tetsuo has a dream about his girlfriend where she comes at him with this, like, tail-slash-hose-phallus thing and then sodomizes him a bunch right before he drill-penises her. And it's pretty erotic, but also... Pretty not erotic. <laughs> and we got like 90% through that scene, which is like 10 minutes into the movie. And she was like, I'm not watching this anymore. I was like, well, I think I'll head out now. So yeah, if you've seen shots of Tetsuo, you've probably seen like a close up of his face. And then you've probably seen a shot with the drill penis. So basically this erotic scene between him and his girlfriend, Kei Fujiwara, she's eating he hears the sound of metal scraping there's sparks they get in a fight there's it, it it gets rowdy and the next thing you know his dick is a giant drill and it's like a spinning giant drill and he eventually drill penises her straight to death and in the attempt to get her with his drill penis uh he like <laughs> drills through the a door the floor whatever and they they had to use like they actually took one of K. Fujiwara's doors and then drilled through it with the drill penis and uh, I, I think they probably used a different drill first and then just put the penis I don't know that it would sped with appropriate force to drill through a door but anyways they destroyed a real door in the where process. there's a penis there's a way right? exactly that is big if true so uh, bands like 7H Target worship the drill penis I have a wonderful shirt not the one I'm wearing but where Tetsuo is drill penising his girlfriend this is more of actually a Tetsuo the bullet man representation so it's it's pretty cool it, it, it Sukumoto talks about basically the whole transformation generally like the whole film is erotic as much as it is about man fighting this sort of desensitizing nightmare that is living in a city and technology oriented world that we live in like you know rebel against modern society whatever it's also like about expressing sexuality but not directly because he was young and didn't really know how to do that partially and just also like it was i mean there's just like a lot of kind of fetishistic imagery in the movie you could say and certainly the amount of times i've watched it it's like become fetishized in its own sense so that's fun it uh <laughs> it took 18 months to make the film forever they started... That's a very long time. Yeah, so Shinya started doing, like, a rough cut four months in, and was just like, oh, shit, I need to do, like, so much more stuff. And it, it just... Crew was dropping, like, flies as the months went on, because basically everybody was volunteer. He had quit his job, as I mentioned previously, to do the two films before this. So he was working part-time, like, cooking or whatever, living in this tiny apartment, but he wasn't even living there. He was living at K. Fujiwara's house. It was like every cent, every ounce of strength, energy, time went into this. And basically everybody was there on a largely volunteer basis. You were there to make the movie and follow his direction or get the fuck out, essentially. And by the end of it, uh, Taguchi was one of the last people. He was the last person, but even he left before it was all done. Tsukamoto says he was the, the only one there to do the stop motion stuff, which if you've seen the film is like a ton of stuff. And I can only imagine it took a ton of fucking time because it's like all through the film. It's part of what makes it look so cool. And 
Toguchi and Fujiwara talk about like they would work the lights on the scenes that would then have like Shinya in them and like you know Kay would be shooting Toguchi's holding the lights like you know the actors have become the crew etc and this is something that basically continues on for quite a few films after this so before he had finished the filming too like I said he did an initial edit about like four to five months in and kind of created a trailer highlight reel and this was during so this is 1988, 1990, 1989 era. So the Japanese video market was in this huge boom. And this is also right before the Japanese bubble burst. So like companies just have fucking oodles and oodles of money. They're making all this money by renting videos and selling videos and all this stuff. And he starts going around trying to find somebody who will uh, basically give money to finish the films. So he runs into a former PIA film festival employee who he met through doing his screening of Denshu Kozo and all that. And he hooked him up with F2, who specialized in distributing foreign indie films from America and Europe. And then F2 put him in contact with Japan Home Video, who advanced him funds to finish Tetsuo in order for them to get the domestic rights for all video releases and everything like that. So he goes with that. That gives him enough money to get the sound done professionally, finish the rest of the photography and filming and all that kind of stuff. And long story short, he winds up working with Chu uh, Ishikawa for the soundtrack. He he had different demo tapes from different soundtrack artists and like musicians generally. And he heard the early Chu Ishikawa band Zeitlich Vergelter, which was influenced by Einstrats Narsbach. No. Norbauten, I can't say their name. Nobody can say their name. Germans, maybe, but <laughs> Joy Division, other industrial stuff. He was somebody who like knew about that first wave industrial music from the UK and from Germany, and was hugely influenced by that. It's not shocking to hear it when you hear yeah the music for Tetsuo. 100%. Yeah, so he was super into that, and basically they got together, and he told Ishikawa like, make me tracks, and I will just pull from those songs and just put it in the movie, which is very much how Argento used Goblin's music, where they would just write full songs, and then he would take chunks of it right. and pop it in, which as much as I love Argento, you can certainly say that there's not a lot of finesse with the way the music cues <laughs> come in and out. They'll just like abruptly stop like mid-cue. It's very bizarre. And... It, it worked pretty well, except for the fact that f in the very beginning, Tsukamoto said to him, I want you to make music with the sounds of metal. And so Chu Ishikawa was like trying to make tracks entirely composed of him banging metal. And he's like, I can't do this. Like, There's only so much I can do with that. And eventually he's like, I think maybe he doesn't mean that as literally as I'm taking it. So I'm going to add some synthetic sounds in and build it up. And he did that. And it came out uh, much better and he sent him the tracks, and Tsukamoto was totally about it, and it, it started a beautiful relationship. And Chu Ishikawa composed for every film he did except for his next film until he passed away from cancer in 2014. So Tsukamoto finished the film in January of 1989. The first screening was at Nakano Musashino Hall, and was screened right after Emperor Hirohito died. Tsukamoto designed the poster, which... If you look on the Wikipedia for the page, I believe that's the poster he designed. It looks really cool. It's not the one that I think most people will think of. But he asked sci-fi horror film critic Yoichi Komatsuzawa. Komatsuzawa. And again, I apologize if we botch some of these Japanese names. I'm 
pretty good. I'm not good. botching any of them. You're botching. Them. Yeah, yeah, right. I feel like I'm pretty good, but I'm not going to get them all right. So, sorry, Japan. Uh, for a blurb, he screened the film for him specifically, and Yoichi liked it so much that he said, I'll write the blurb, but you have to let me get this to a film festival. I want to send it to the Fanta Film Festival in Rome. And he said, okay, fast forward to June... So Tsukamoto's sitting at home watching this TV show that he watches. It's like a sort of music variety whatever show. And the host is said to not be there because he's at the Fanta Film Festival. And he's like, oh shit, I think my movie's there. And then he finds out by watching... I, my understanding from reading the book is that they announce the winner on the show and it's him. His film wins. That's what the bullet man is, like the grand prize winner of the Fanta Film Festival. And he's like, would you look at that? <laughs> no way! Yeah, so this was not this was not the first time that uh, you know he had had multiple. Uh, basically, all of his films had been screened in one way or another at various experimental film festivals or whatever. But he still was a relatively unknown quantity and had no money, so he didn't get to attend any of these festival screenings or anything like that. So there was a representative for him at the festival who accepted the prize, and who gave the prize for winning. But Lloyd Kaufman of Troma fame, with Alejandro Jodorowsky and other like famous cult directors being in the audience cheering, applauding, and everybody was like, "This movie's fucking incredible. We've never seen anything like this." But imagine Lloyd Kaufman's the guy. How cool is that? <laughs> so it, it this and this is partially why I wanted to start this episode with this film. Tetsuo winning at this film festival signaled, ushered in a new era of interest and how can I put this Tetsuo's win at the Fanta film festival ushered in a new found interest in foreign films for like all the countries outside of Japan and even amongst Japanese audiences themselves. It was the studio system had largely fallen away. It was turning into V cinema and a bunch of like porno and whatever. I mean, a lot of that had been happening for a while but this was the first time a Japanese film had done anything in a film festival in like 10 years, more like 15, and anybody had any interest. Basically, all the Japanese new wave from the 50s, 60s, and 70s was done. Those directors had all kind of not done a lot. The 80s it was a dark time for, I mean, it feels like everyone in the world, kind of, in a lot of ways. It was not the cultural renaissance, although Depeche Mode. The other film that sort of coupled with this, that brought this new light and interest especially from like the u.s france and the uk was katsuhiro otomo's akira which came out in 1999 in japan oh, yeah, and did. also 1989 in the usa which is when tetsuo first sort of did a little bit of the rounds in the states so the screening at the fanta film festival and then the subsequent screenings that it went on to do at other film festivals garnered a lifelong audience and interest uh, in Shinya Tsukamoto's work from especially U.S. audiences, but French audiences, European audiences generally. And it set this immediately, like, super high bar where people were like, this is a totally unique vision. This guy is a fucking genius. Like, we've never seen anything this great. And, I mean, imagine... It's funny because it almost feels like an older film in a lot of ways, but it's just such a, like... You watch it and you're like, there's nothing else like Tetsuo the Iron Man. Yeah, that's very true. There are other movies that have come out since that are hugely influenced by it. And you can say, okay, I can see that. But there is nothing that really is Tetsuo equivalent uh, from the time or from before it. So it also sounds like without Tetsuo, 
we probably wouldn't have gotten Akira or anime in general. Well, no. So Akira, I mean, Akira was already a manga before Tetsuo was finished. No, what I'm saying in the states. Well, no. So the Akira had done big in Japan, but it was a lot of good happenstance of like people seeing, okay, this. Japanese animation stuff could be the next big ticket seller. And they had already had some luck with some of the shows they had brought over before that with like Speed Racer and shit like that. But that movie was, nobody anticipated it would be as big as it was, but that came over independently, but worked hand in hand. Manga, uh, Manga Core picked up the rights for like Tetsuo the Body Hammer and then later Tetsuo the Iron Man and stuff for the US. So they were... In that sense, like they were conjoined. Although I don't think that Manga Core had the rights for Akira. I think that was it was VCI. I want to say first, and some of those other like shitty companies that are like so long since gone. I can't. I don't even want to delve into the quagmire that is the licensing of international and U.S. companies of Japanese. That's animation. why it's so easy to stream anime online, and no one's gonna come and arrest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the you know both. Films also have similar themes. Akira is a little bit in the future. Tetsuo is very much the present, which differentiates them, but they deal with these people transforming and trying to deal with this nightmare that is, like, reality. Body and, horror and... Yeah. And Tsukamoto says... Oh, well, so before I touch on this, I want to say... I think I mentioned it last time. I, I have to talk about it now. So he was also inextricably linked with the idea, the genre of cyberpunk, which was... Something that came out of the 80s, Neuromancer being one of the more famous things, later stuff like The Matrix obviously was the sort of late 90s, I would say like zenith of cyberpunk, but really it was a late 80s, early 90s kind of a thing visually, like I think of so many shitty RPGs and like tabletop RPG, pen and paper ones that yeah. had cyberpunk stuff. There was also the cyberpunk games for SNES and Genesis and like, you know, Akira and tons of anime that was cyber, whatever. Anyway... He had never even heard the term. He didn't know about it. Like, that was not his influence at all in making it. But, you know, people were like, this is cyberpunk, this is cyberpunk. And it's so funny because there's nothing cybernetic about it. It's no. like, it's way more, it's not steampunk either. It's it's iron punk, you it's, know. It's <laughs> mechanical. It's not electronic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not purposely embedding these things into you to further the human race. It's... Which, which doesn't have to be cyberpunk, but, like, I mean, it's literally metal fetishist. Like, the guy's yeah. just obsessed, you know, the the character Shinya Tsukamoto plays is obsessed with metal and, like, shoving metal into himself in the very beginning of the film and then, you know, runs out and gets hit by a car and yada, yada, yada. But I bring that up because Tsukamoto says, like, no, that was not my intention. Like, it's fine that I'm wrapped up in that and people have gone on to, like, criticized my later work because it's not cyberpunk but like i never was a knowing member i never member. made cyberpunk yeah, movies so, so so i don't know what your beef is but he talks about for him the biggest influences were basically cronenberg's the fly videodrome and blade runner which like if you want to make a movie that's totally sick yeah pick those as influences yeah. and the terminator also was a pretty big influence so yeah yeah Two out of four cyberpunk movies. Well, they're all cyberpunk. Terminator is a cyberpunk the fly? film. Okay, cyberpunk. That's not cyberpunk. Videodrome is and Blade Runner is. Is it? What? Videodrome? Yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That yeah. is like the most cyberpunk. It's the near future. It's fucking shoving Betamaxes into your brain and shit. What's more cyberpunk than vaginal wounds and videotapes? Anything with Keanu Reeves? 
True. Johnny Mnemonic. Yeah. That's like... It's like the most cyberpunk and also the worst. And he's is... going to be in cyberpunk 2077. Yeah. And they're making a new Matrix. Time is a flat circle. All of this being said, we haven't even really discussed the film, but it's also kind of like pointless to talk about the film. Like just, it's 60 minutes. Yeah, go watch it. And it's it's like a semi-abstract art cyberpunk. <laughs> Where can you even get it, though? Um, You can probably still get copies for a decent price on Amazon. I have the Tartan Japanese Extreme whatever version of it, which was uh, the major U.S. release. There's also, I think it's called Solid Collection, is the Blu-ray, Japanese Blu-ray version of it. I don't know if those are region locked and won't work. Because they have, they use the same coding as we do, but I don't know if you can play Japanese Blu-rays on American players, even though it would be, you can, are you sure? Pretty sure. The other problem is there's probably not subtitles, although for Tetsuo the Iron Man, that really doesn't matter. But it it's does... It's not about what they're saying. As far as I know, there's basically no... None of the films that we're going to cover tonight have been released on Blu-ray in the U.S. yet, which fucking sucks. I was looking at buying them on Amazon Japan for this solid collection, and they're super expensive, but they look fucking sick, and I want them bad. There are... Third Window has done a bunch of Blu-rays for Europe, but that doesn't help me, so... Is it on Amazon right now? No. It looks like it's on Shutter, which surprises me but you i'm pretty sure you can also watch it on youtube yeah you probably can it's one of those films though where it really is like having we just watched bullet ballet tonight and i watched tokyo fist last night as shitty rips and it's basically akin to vhs quality which isn't the worst but it's also like his films are high contrast black and white with tons of detail like they're literally it's the kind of film that really 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 should be seen in full clarity unlike shitty 80s horror, which kind of benefits from a VHS bad copy, even though we're all spending tons of money on Blu-ray re-releases and whatever, whatever. I don't but, know what you're talking about. Right, right, right. But anyway, yeah, I, I can't even describe the film because to give it description would be to do it injustice, but it's basically a man's transformation into the Iron Man. It fucking rules. There's a reason I've got six shirts, a tattoo, and a couple records, and... Uh, it's... The soundtrack is incredible, the way it's shot is jarring, yeah. which works super well for everything that's happening in it. Yeah, it's it's so much energy. The thing that I will say about Tsukamoto's films generally is that they are vivacious. They are full of like life and this just like intense energy in them. That vital sort of changes a little bit on that note, but not really. It just does it in a different way. But I think it's one of the best things about him. Like there, there's just this this characteristic like intensity to his films, and it's definitely it's just awesome. It's also not the one and done deal. Like start with uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man, so that you can say I've seen the classic, the legend, the the cult, you know, masterpiece akin to Eraserhead and uh, Evil Dead and things like that, Night of the Living Dead, like, you know, having these first films that are cult favorites and whatever, but his, the rest of his work is as good, if not better. Like, that was just, it's just the jumping off point for Tsukamoto, so. I mean, and we'll get to it, but Bullet Ballet is one of my favorite movies I've watched in a lot, a while now. Yeah. That movie was really, really fucking good. 
And not something I'd honestly expected because I haven't seen much outside of his Tetsuo films. So all the doors are opened, except for not exactly, but basically after... Many doors, but not all doors are open. Yeah. So people know that Tsukamoto is not a complete incompetent hack now. He has made this crazy movie. But it's still like so crazy that it... It does not translate to, let's throw money at this man. It's just like, well, maybe he's not a total... We've got a built-in audience, and he, he's he's probably not totally incompetent if we were to hire him to make a film. So he gets basically three opportunities right out of the gate after Tetsuo hits the festivals, does well, and then gets some you know domestic openings and whatever. First, there is a PIA scholarship program, which is the film festival that Dinshukozo did well at, or won at, I should say. It's the film festival that Dinshu Koza won at. And he's he's offered this scholarship thing, but he basically has to clear his ideas and everything through this group of, like, four jury, committee, member, whatever. That sounds fun. Yeah, and it's this whole slow, unpainful process. But they offer him an adaptation of the story Tori Gorasu by Shuei Hasegawa, which he's super interested in and will be this, like, weird kind of ghost, spooky, whatever story, but basically the author gets fed up before Shinya Tsukamoto does and says, fuck it, I'm taking my story and the rights elsewhere. And then he's like, well, I guess I'm not going to do this then. So he pitches to them doing a Tetsuo 2, now with a bigger budget and hypothetically the ability to pay cast members and stuff like that. And they're like, no, nah, we don't really want to do that. And in between pitching them that idea and getting turned down for it, and the first idea of falling through, Cedic International comes to him, which is a company, and they ask him if he'd like to do an adaptation of Daijiro Moroboshi's story. And he's like, eh, I don't know, like, I don't really want to do an adaptation, but I guess I could do it, but let me see about the Tetsuo 2 thing, and then that falls through, and he's like, okay, fuck it. <laughs> so he writes these kind of, these manga that are, like, about ghosts and spirits and it's like good shit. It's it's similar to Erogawa Rampo that we talked about last episode and we're going to talk about again later tonight. But he's asked to combine two stories, Demon Hunter, a.k.a. Yokai Hanta, and Red Lips, a.k.a. Akai Kuchibiru. So Sukumoto does the screenplay and he directs, but cinematography and editing are handled by others, partially at the studio's insistence. Because they're like, it's awesome that you just did a 60-minute experimental film about a guy transforming into a giant hunk of metal. But this is kind of like a little different, and we want you to have like experienced people with you. Now, because of the success of Tetsuo, some of his crew comes back. He also gets like a lot of new people who are willing to volunteer and help. But he gets dedicated crew members from Shochiko, Shochiku, which is one of the last of the major Japanese studios. So they're involved in the bankrolling and the domestic distribution rights and screenings and stuff, and I'll get into that in a second. But basically, he still has a lot of freedom, and he gets to do it his way in some ways, but he's got to make compromises that he won't have to make for the majority of his career. But... You know, they, they know that he's competent, but, like, they're not giving him full reign, which is kind of understandable. So from Shinya's perspective, the film shared a lot of elements and feelings with his earlier 8mm work, kind of the fantastic nature of the story. And I guess to expound upon that, the, the story is basically, like, this 
demon breaks a portal open under a school cool. and then demons start coming out and terrorizing people and this young boy has to try to close the portal but it's also like trying to get laid in the process and it's basically like a young boy adventure story like you know it's the just story of my life exactly and so when he describes how it's similar to his younger more adolescent work of like basically young boy adventures and but at the same time trying to get laid and be cool it makes a lot of sense and the there's all these monsters so i've never seen this film it's one of the hardest to get because it's basically the most derided film in his whole uh filmography partially because it's different than the majority of his other work in the sense of it's more fantastical and there's none of the body horror in the metal shoving inside of yourself sense but in other ways there is there's these creatures that are like heads with spider legs very much like the thing which was an influence on the film and there's like demon faces and 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 all sorts of weird like arachnid squid centipede bullshit daddy beard like spider heads i can tell you that right now yeah so i've heard that it's actually quite a good film but it just has because of the editing and the cinematography was done by other people like it doesn't have that same kind of hyperkinetic psycho quality and whatever so it doesn't feel the same as other Sukamoto films but like that's okay i'm I'm sure that I would enjoy it because it basically still has that same worship of monsters and fantasy and weird shit that he has in all of his work. So, like, come on. Can we get a hold of it? I have a I have a torrent of low quality that is actually slightly better quality than Bullet Ballet, so it is doable as a watch. If you watch it without me, I will cut your throat. Cool. It was mostly a good experience for him. Part of it was that when he was working... And that advertising company before he quit his job at, uh, I think it was Shige, if memory serves me right. When he was working at the advertisement company, he he directed commercials and sometimes he would work with A-list actors. He worked with professional crews. He knew about deadlines and crunches and all that stuff. So he was okay working with professionals who had a lot more experience with them, even if they may have bitched and moaned about it. And one of the most important people that he started to work with during this process was Shinichi Kabahara, who was an assistant to Shinya and also a former theater mate from their college days. And he was one of the assistant directors and he was sort of in touch with how the crew felt about things and how Shinya felt about things. And they would form a lasting bond that I think goes all the way to Tetsuo the Bullet Man. I don't know if he continued after that because I couldn't find credits to support that. But he's basically involved in all of his films except for Tokyo Fist from this point onwards. He had good experiences. He could work with the, the, the A-list actors. But the only person was... There was Hideo Muroda, who, if you see a picture of him, I'll show you after the episode, but he was a Yakuza film actor and had been in a lot of movies before this and was in a lot of movies after. But apparently he was a bit of an alcoholic and he would show up on set and they would really get into some fights because Shinya felt like he wasn't taking it seriously right. and he's drunk and defensive. <laughs> And he's... I'm, you're not taking it seriously. I'm yeah. not drunk. You're serious. Yeah, like, literally show up with a bottle in his hand. But Tsukamoto reflects on it after the fact and says, like, I, I kind of get now that he was working through his own shit and insecurities, and I just more feel bad for him. But he gave me good performances. He was trying to do his best. He just was had drunk. to drink to yeah. overcome it. And, you know, I have got a little bit of sympathy for that. So, the movie got a big budget, relatively. I mean... 
certainly a lot more than Tetsuo had, and it had hypothetical support, but they fucked up the marketing. I, if you look at the original Japanese poster, you're like, what the fuck? Who would want to see this? It looks just like a candy-colored nightmare. And they kind of blew it, and it's basically... It's one of two studio films he's ever done. And it was poorly received. It was unpopular. The only real positive feedback he got were from other people in the industry that he knew, like other directors and things, who said they thought it was really good. Especially Kazuki Omori and Takashige Ichise, who gave him uh, positive feedback on it. But he personally thinks of it as being a pretty successful successful for what he was trying to accomplish he still likes it i very much want to see it they there's a lot of like love that's used warmth in the book to describe it from his own words and from tom as of like yeah this movie's kind of a weird one in some senses but like it's it's ambitious in a way that a sophomore movie would be and falls flat in the way that a sophomore right. movie would but it's not a bad film it's just different and that's okay so I just want to say the nice part about this book is that at the end of each section about each film they have Shinya Tsukamoto's thoughts on the film in his own words so this is what he says Hiroko-chan is my first daughter it's also a very precious film for me for that reason if Tetsuo is my first born son then Hiroko is my first daughter she is more polite and was born with the wish to be loved by others Actually, she isn't loved that much by other people, but I love her a lot. The film is also cherished memory of one summer. The feelings I had while living that summer are entwined with it. They are part of the film. Hiroku, Hiroko also contains the spirit of boys' adventure stories, and for all these reasons, it's a precious film for me. It was the first time I shot a film for a big company, and every day I felt excited and enthusiastic about almost anything that happened. It's like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, hashtag wholesome. Hashtag wholesome indeed. From drill penis to wholesomeness. So, Hiruko the Goblin, a.k.a. Hiruko Yokai Hanta, was released in 1991, and immediately after the film was over, Tsukamoto started working on Tetsuo 2, the body <laughs> hammer. So it's a damn shame, because you haven't seen this one, and I haven't watched it in a couple years. I guess I watched it I think I watched it right after I moved in here, so like a year and a half ago, for the first time. I've only seen it the one time, but it made a heck of an impression on me. And it's, well, it's interesting. So, before he even started directing Hiruko, Tsukamoto was looking for locations for Tetsuo 2. He basically, he wanted to do not so much a sequel as kind of a bigger budget revamp, like a redo. And... And it's it's like both. It's nice and I'm well. That's, that's that makes sense. That's essentially what the first Tetsuo was was a bigger budget redo of a Phantom of regular size. Yeah. And one of the things that we'll talk about a little later is there was a movie called Karn by Gaspar No, who's the guy who did Irreversible and Into the Void and yada yada. I I didn't realize he's only done like five movies. Mm -hmm. I I've seen I Stand Alone, which is his first film, and apparently. Uh, Karn, or Carne, was this short film that was like 38 minutes long and was the precursor to I Stand Alone, which was basically a continuation but also a redo. And I'm like, oh, I totally get that. You know, a, these are arty dudes and they've got, you know, they start with one thing and it's like your pilot kind of. And then it's like, give me. 
it's not unheard of, especially in horror movies. They do oh, yeah. it all the Evil time. Dead. Yeah, well, Evil Dead, one, Evil Dead Two is totally like a mixture of remake. That's and, also like a that was also like a licensing issue and I know, stuff. But, I know. Um, unfortunately, and I, I think I actually talked about I might have talked about this on a bad buy. I can't remember, but there's a movie called I believe it's called All Hallows Eve mm. or something like that. But it was like the precursor to Terrifier mm. and Oculus was originally, like, a very short film. Okay. That, the director's name is escaping me right now, but it's the same guy who did Haunting Hill House Netflix series, and he's also Oh, Rodney Dangerfield. Yes, Rodney Dangerfield. Kevin Smith and Rodney Dangerfield. Yes. So anyways, let's not get too far off on a tangent. Flick you and your balls. Okay, so... So he took what crew would join him from Hiroko... On to make Tetsuo 2. Again, got new people. He also took all the money he made from Hiroko and founded the Kaiju Theater Company proper. The one that you see, bam, at the title of, or at the beginning of every one of his movies. Bam! Kaiju Theater, partner. He wanted to make some changes. The first big one is shooting it in color. So the, the color palette of the film is essentially everything that is cold, sterile, city, boring, you know, lifeless is blue. And everything that's like hot and sexy is oranges and some yellers, and it it the film the color rules like even though Tetsuo the the Iron Man is defined by its incredible high contrast black white photography Tetsuo the Body Hammer is just as much defined by its color and not just in comparison to the Iron Man but like in the sense of it works so well the movie it's part of the whole character of the film like it's not just some bullshit. And they do the same shit we mentioned the Matrix as far as cyberpunk goes. Like, they, they have that whole thing where they, you know... And they do this a lot in movies now with just digital filtering. But back then it was a little bit different, a little harder. Some lighting and stuff. But it looks fucking crazy. It starts off with these skinhead bodybuilders, but they're Japanese, so it's okay. They're not exactly Nazis. And they're not Nazis. They're just like... Anyways, they're just skinhead skinheads. They're guys with shaved heads. They're skin. Okay. They're skins on their head. There, there's no, there's no Nazi salutes. There's no politics in this other than sexual. Do they body. come off as racist? No. So then they're just bald, buff, angry dudes. Yeah. Okay. Full of like tubes and shit, and they're all just like doing t- stuff with tubes, and it's kind of like that scene in the episode of The Simpsons where didn't see that turn coming. <laughs> <laughs> like Bart makes friends with that gay dude who runs the retro store, and then they go to like the Iron Mill place, and it's like we work hard, we play <laughs> hard, and then. They say I got like the I got the power comes on and everybody's dancing. It's like that, but with less mustaches. It fucking rules. They're the all whole like, movie's a gay iron mill. Yeah, basically. You have to explain. You have to understand. I've never seen this. I know. So okay. I'm assuming it's just more Tetsuo. Like I don't know. Shooting begins on Christmas Day, 1990. Cast are as follows: Tomoro Taguchi plays Taniguchi Tomo, aka the Body Hammer. So he was asked by Sukumoto to return for the film, and since he was like the last person to survive the shooting of the original film, and also it was the film that started his career, he kind of was like, I think I kind of have to go back and do this again. So he did, and it was also a little bit better because Sukumoto had some acclaim and some money, and more people were willing to work on the film than in the past, so it was probably not going to be quite as terrible and brutal as an experience as the first time. Maybe. 
Shinya Sukamoto plays the metal fetishist, a.k.a. Yatsu, a.k.a. the guy, leader of a group of bodybuilding skinheads. Nobu Kanaoka, woman with glasses in the first one, upgrade to the wife this time, because K. Fujiwara was like, peace, deuces, etc. Uh, Sujin <laughs> Kim plays Tanaguchi's father, who was also a student of Juro Kara, the super influential avant-garde uh, theater director, who we mentioned multiple times in the last episode. Uh, Tokitoshi Shiota, a film critic who was in the audience when Tetsuo won at the Fanta Film Festival and a big supporter of Sukumoto's work throughout the years, gets a small cameo role. Shinichi Kawahara plays one of the main assistants to Yatsu in the film. Like he's he's assistant director, but he's also like in the film. And Hideaki Tezuka plays the big skinhead. There's a bunch of other people. It's so brutal with Japanese films and especially Shinya Sukumoto's films. They're the credits on IMDB and trying to like match up these people. And then the, they mention people in the book who I can't find credits for on the thing. I'm like, I don't fucking know. So I'm doing my best. But basically, Tetsuo lives with his wife. They've got a kid. The metal fetishist is like, that Tetsuo's got some anger in him. Let's kidnap that kid. A bunch of skinheads show up at his house. They kidnap his kid. Tetsuo gets, like, super pissed, starts, like, turning into the body hammer, starts, like, guns start coming out of him, he's, like, blowing shit up. It's fucking nuts. What? Are you sure I haven't watched this with you? Yeah, because, I mean, I've only seen it once, so... It's just, it sounds, the kid kidnapping thing and everything, it sounds like I've seen it. Maybe. I feel like we've just talked about it a bunch. Maybe. It could be one of those a collective memory I feel like there's a scene things. where like the kid's running from him. I don't know. Alright, please continue. Anyway, so then... Everything blends together. He goes now. after them. He winds up in the factory. It's basically a bigger budget like showdown from the first movie. The wife shows up and he's like trying. He's having flashbacks with his dad involved. And there's a scientist and he's like... Make him angry and this huge gun comes out of his chest. Again... There, there's slightly more narrative, and that's cool, but it's still like a very just visual, you got to experience it, go see it kind of a movie. I can't really talk about plot points when it's about basically kidnapping a kid to make a guy like lose his shit. But, again, the violence, the transformation, all that kind of stuff is about, it's, it's not just what it is on screen, it's supposed to be symbolic of, you know, sort of rebelling against our desensitized post-industrial society, whatever shit. So they have a crew of 60 people when they start, 10 from Hiruko, who all get the best positions and teach the new crew how to do shit. Takashi Oda was a professional from Hiruko, the only like proper like professional crew member from that movie who came over. He worked on all subsequent Tsukamoto films up through Vital, doing makeup and effects and stuff like that, except for Tokyo Fist. The film was supposed to take less than a year to make. It took a year to make. Two-thirds of the crew left by the end, so they had like 20 people are left. They also ran out of money again, so he got help. Sugimoto got help from Fumio Kurakawa, again through like the F2 PIA connection, who helped him secure over a million dollars in funding from Toshiba EMI, the record label. And it worked out really well because Sugimoto wanted to use this backing track on the thing and 
the artist was from Toshiba, so they were like, oh, yeah, go ahead. And, Whatever. Yeah, and they, they this was, again, like, still, like, we're in the boom years. They've got fucking more money than they know what to do with this. This was the first time they'd ever been involved in a film Toshiba had, so they were just, like, throwing money at it, and they were able to, like, have catering occasionally and, like, pay some people and stuff that worked on the movie. I love hearing, and some people got paid. Yeah, so the, the one thing that's unclear in the book, and I think it's, Probably partially a Japanese thing, but also just sort of the nature of this. So basically, like, any money Shinya Tsukamoto makes, or it seems like the majority of his money goes back into kaiju theater and whatever he's doing. I mean, he's just, like, directs film after film after film after film. So I don't see it. It doesn't appear as if he's living the lavish lifestyle, and mostly any money they're getting paid while they're making the film is just going back into the film. He just wants to make movies. Right. That's it. And so... And a lot of people come and volunteer, and I guess it's like one of those where you get experience, whatever, and can still work another job, hypothetically. But, yeah, it's unclear. I have no figures, but I can discuss a little bit about like some of the films I know, like who got paid versus who didn't, or who got paid more and whatever. But they don't talk about how much it is. And it's certainly not like the U.S. industry, where people do not make the kind of money they make here, because just the film industry in Japan is like, a tenth if not a hundredth of the budgets generally of what we do in the United States even for the shittiest films so it's interesting and it's it's I can't quantify like if people are getting paid at all or not and I don't I don't I'm sure that like as the director I don't think it's out of like sheer just like you are not important so I'm not paying you I think it's more of just like the practicality of like everything I do is independent and I can only afford to do what I can do and like I will pay you if I can but I probably can't pay you much and you will work your ass off so you will wear a heavy suit and you will be hot (laughs) yeah Yeah. so Toshiba they basically get their money back so they invest like a million dollars or close to it hey yeah they get their money back like American dollars at the time that's like big big money bucks so they get their money back through domestic video rights Tsukamoto gets to keep theatrical and international rights, which was like a really good deal, and only because Toshiba was so inexperienced with dealing with films that they were able to like get that kind of a deal. Chu Ishikawa returns for the soundtrack, but in this time, instead of just sending him big chunks of tracks or big tracks for him to take chunks of, he worked more closely with him to develop themes for specific parts of the movie and specific imagery and all that kind of stuff. So Ishikawa struggled even in some ways more on this film than on the last one because the pressure was kind of on. The collaboration went really well for the first one, but because they were doing these specific themes for specific moments, he wanted to create something different. And this is, in his own words, where the inspiration came from finally. So he says, I like frogs. I used to have a poster on my studio wall of all the species of frog in Japan. While I was working on the music for Tetsuo 2, I would sometimes stare at the poster and be inspired by it for the music. I tried to imitate the sound of a frog jumping toward the water. I played it for Tsukamoto, and he really liked it. Ishikawa named the piece Rana Porosa Porosa, after the scientific name of one of Japan's indigenous species. To me, the frog is a symbol for calmness. On Tetsuo 2, I became conscious of the fact that loud music does not automatically express strength and violence. You can also express such things with calmer music. The juxtaposition of loud and calm became one of my premises for the soundtrack, and as a whole, I took more care of the details. Fucking frogs, bro. Yeah, as a guy who thinks frogs are pretty rad, I was like... Frogs rule rules. Plague of frogs. 
Yeah. Hellboy. Ribbit, ribbit. That's right, dog. Also, big waifu from My Hero Academia, but we won't go there. So the film gets entered into the Avoria's Fantastic Film Festival in France in 1992. Toshiba EMI puts up the money to send Tsukamoto, Taguchi, Kanaoka, and some others out for the screening. They showed Tetsuo and Hiruko as well in honor of Tsukamoto at the film festival. But it was not an awesome experience for Tsukamoto because people were not staying for the whole film or leaving before the credits were over and not staying for like the sort of Q&A and whatever. And in Japan, nobody would ever do that in a million years. But like the film was screened at midnight and whatever else. And he just thought like, oh, people hated it. But he spoke with Gaspar Noe the next day who explained like, that's just kind of how it is in European film festivals. It's not... People are rude in our country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're in France. So don't even worry about it. And also, he fucking loved it and was like, that movie was amazing, et cetera, et cetera. So they do that first screening, but Tsukamoto's unhappy with the sound, not in the sense of... So when they brought it to the first studio to do the sound, they insisted that the voices be mixed really high. He did not like that. They didn't have money to reshoot anything, but basically they redid the whole sound, Tim, Chuishikawa, and then a new studio and a new studio engineer. And they, that's the version that I've seen and everybody's basically seen. It's called the Super Remix version. And that was the theatrical release and subsequent festival releases. So it won, it didn't win any awards at Avoria's, but it won at Ubari, Brussels, Hong Kong, Stigas, and Montreal. It was praised by director Sui Hark, who was a big deal Vietnamese slash Hong Kong director. That I don't, I don't know. Well, anyways, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Lloyd Kaufman, Jean-Pierre Junot and Mark Caro, who are the guys that directed The City of Lost Children, Delicatessen, mm-hmm. and then um, Jean-Pierre went on to do Emily and some other stuff. They were all super crazy about it. They thought it was great. And it's tough for me because I just, you know, France, well, I'm not going to get into it. Everybody knows how I feel about that. Uh, one of the funny things was that they talked about is Sukamoto went to Yodorowsky's home in Paris with Jean-Pierre Junot, Marc Caro, and Gaspar Noe, and they went to, like, the meditation room that Yodorowsky had under the stairs, which had this, like, it was basically empty except for a huge book on dissection, which will come back up later in Vital, which I will talk yeah, about. Yeah, and I'm sure there wasn't a bunch of cocaine in there. <laughs> they mean, don't mention it. Why would they? Yeah, right. And But it was funny, too, because they talked about also the thing that was most interesting was they had... He still had, like, all the storyboards and art assets for his failed attempt at doing a Dune movie, you know, which is, like, yeah. famously... And they were just, like, a bunch of kids in the candy store kind of thing. But the success of Tetsuo 2 and the interest from international distributors and stuff basically taught Tsukamoto and his growing group of basically allies, compatriots from Japan and stuff like that, how to license films internationally and and what they could, like, basically that they could make money on their films and budget their films based on what they thought they would do as far as international rights. And that was really the big thing he talks about. After Tetsuo 2, he's like, oh shit, this cost me this much money to make, and it was expensive, but he's like, I'm going to make this back to selling the rights. Like, what was I doing? We could have spent <laughs> way more money on this shit. Although his movies never seem like overly garish or crazy or whatever but it's expensive to make movies so they they started to to plan for that moving forward 
So, Dick Fetty, has Sugimoto ever done any kind of commercials or collaborations with fa famous and favorite musical artists of yours? Yes, he has, <laughs> Ben the Beardo. You might be wondering who that artist would be. Well, that would be Trent Reznor of famous Nine Inch Nails. No, not eight or ten inches. We're talking the whole nine. Like, I want to fuck you like an animal Nine Inch Nails? That's right. One and the same. But their collaboration came before the famed album, 1994's Downward Spiral, and its lead single, Closer. I'm so hot for you right now. Okay, well, that's cool. My guy. So, okay, here's the deal. Trent Reznor sends a big fan letter to Sukumoto and says, I really love Tetsuo the Iron Man. It totally rules, and I would love you to direct a music video for me. And Sukumoto at this point had already gotten a ton of requests to do music videos. He's like, I'm too cool for this shit, and I don't have time. But he, Mostly, I don't want to. Yeah, but he, he liked Trent Reznor's work and said, yeah, I, I I could do this. And he said, okay, well, we we're working on our new like mini album. It's called Broken. So, you know, we have this idea, we want to basically, we'll let you do whatever you want, and we don't care if it's going to get airplay, it can be on TV or anything like that. Like, I just love your work, I trust you, we just would love for you to do a song. So, he asked him to do a track from Broken, they don't say which one it was, but for those who are Nine Inch Nails fans, as I am, Broken is famous because it was the EP that, well, mini album he did to end his contract with TVT. And it is like the most aggro thing they ever recorded. It's the closest to straight metal Dungeon Nails ever was. Yes. And it fucking rules. It's got uh, Happiness and Slavery and Wish and Last and Gave Up. And like, I mean, every song on it's awesome. Good Pinion. fucking album. Yeah. Uh, Help Me, I'm in Hell. And then it's got that those sweet covers of, uh, what was it? Uh, physical and, oh, Jesus. Suck by Pig Face. Yeah, it's great. It also folds out. It's like a digipack that folds out into a giant cross, and it says, like, Sin, or no, Nin, duh. In, uh, Weird. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he agrees, and he's like, yeah, totally. So Shinya Sugimoto's idea is, like, he's going to have these, like, man and woman on either side, and they're going to go through this transformation. It's going to be cool. He sends Trent Reznor a fax over, uh, over about, like, the details and stuff, and it goes to TVT, and then he doesn't hear anything. And then, like, a year later, he's in the United States, and he hears the song, and he's like, wasn't I supposed to do a music video for this? But sort of just kind of forgets about it. And Chris Christopherson of Coil and sometimes Throbbing Gristle and all those bands, famous British industrial artists, directed all of the videos. And the broken videos are, like, super famous in Nine Inch Nails, like, amazing video discography generally, but also just, like, videos, music videos, like, that push the envelope the most famous probably being the happiness and slavery one because they have super masochist Bob Flanagan and it getting his dick and balls tortured a bunch and like eventually he gets turned into mincemeat and it totally rules and it would have been insane if Shinya Tsukamoto had a video mixed in with all that but that didn't happen allegedly the facts fell on the floor and what I read between the lines or like to imagine is like TVT was like, fuck you, fuck Japan, fuck Shinya Tsukamoto, fuck you Trent Reznor for not wanting to be on the label anymore, yada, yada, yada. And that's why that didn't happen. But Trent Reznor was not phased in the sense of, I mean, he was disappointed, didn't happen, but they wound up getting linked up again just a year later because Tsukamoto was offered to do a station ID for MTV 
Japan, and it's called like a top of the hour station ID. So he did this 50 second video of a guy who's like morphing into a motorcycle guitar thing and then like turns into a sort of Tetsuo and runs through the streets. It's it's like exactly what you would expect. Yes. Soundtrack to some music created by Trent Reznor. And then they did that. They were like so stoked on it. And then MTV was like, oh, this is sick. But actually, and they took out Trent Reznor's music and just put like some goofy jingle on top, which isn't what we watched. We watched it with Trent Reznor's music. But they did that, and Shinya Sukumoto was like, well, fuck you guys. But the original version of it still went to, like, an advertising-slash-experimental-whatever film festival in New York and won, I think it was 1995, Best Award for, like, short For 50 TV seconds. Promo, yeah. Incredible. So, yeah, I know, right? And you guys can find it on YouTube. Yeah. If you look up Trent Reznor, Shinya Sukumoto, you'll see it. It's easy to tell. It's 50 seconds. Best Network ID. That's what it won. 1994 New York City competition. Okay. Moving, All right. Moving on. Another year, another film. So 1995, we get Tokyo Fist, the 87-minute, 35-millimeter color film, which features Shinji Tsukamoto co-starring with his brother, Koji Tsukamoto, who I mentioned a fair amount in the prior episode. Who is very handsome. Yeah, he's handsome, but also kind of weird-looking, and it's it's great. So the... The book, the chapter on this starts with this paragraph, and I'm just going to read it so Tomez gets credit, whatever. But two men, close childhood friends who went their separate ways as adults, are reunited through circumstance. Their meeting setting in motion, a chain of life-altering events that continue where they left off as kids. And he goes on to say, and I agree, that this is the story both of the story of the film itself and the story of how this film was made. So... When Shinya had gone off to college, they essentially started to lead very separate lives. They saw each other like once a year at the New Year's party with their family that they would have, but otherwise Koji and Shinya just didn't really talk and all that. But Koji was the first like star of Shinya's films, as we talked about last time, the 8mm stuff. He did the, what was it, Bruce Koji... Bruce Koji, I think is what it yeah. was called. And uh, some other stuff like that. Nunchucks on walls. Yeah, exactly. So... And when Koji was really into sports and when he left high school, he got really into boxing. And so they had talked kind of haphazardly about doing that boxing film. And after the completion of Tetsuo, the body hammer, Shinya was like, this is what I want to do. And, and Koji had now been boxing for like a pretty long time and was kind of getting a little on the older side of it and had all these crazy stories about stuff at the gym he had been at for so long, et cetera, et cetera. But he also had become a very successful cook and was the head cook at a restaurant in the Ginza, which is like the swanky nightlife district of Tokyo, or, well, one of many of them. So he was he was good. Like, he was set in his life and all the rest. But shouldn't you just kept saying stuff like, it's super fun to make movies. Like, you would have a great time, blah, 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 blah. And he kind of knew, like, if he was going to do this, he was going to have to quit his job. And that would be like a major life-changing event for him. So at the end of 1993, Koji leaves his job with the idea that they're going to start filming in like a month or two. But that doesn't exactly work out. But, huh. Yeah, but we'll get to that in a second. So just a quick rundown of the cast. Shinya Sukumoto plays Suda Yoshiharu, a fatigued, out-of-touch salaryman selling insurance door-to-door. Koji Sukumoto plays Kojima Takuji, Suda's childhood friend who took up boxing after... Uh, they made a high school promise together when a female friend was killed by a gang of like 
I couldn't tell if they were underage delinquents or like early 20s delinquents, but anyways. She's, delinquents nonetheless. Yeah, she's being assaulted and Suda tries to stop it. Or not Suda, but um, Kojima tries to stop it and he gets his ass beat and then she gets killed. And they try to find the guys who did it and stuff happens and they make this thing. They're going to take up boxing and seek revenge, etc. Kaori Fuji plays Hizuru, 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 who is Suda's fiance slash wife. Although it appears to me, I, granted, the version I just watched last night had really shitty subtitles. So I, I thought they never actually tied the knot. They just stayed like engaged the whole film. But then in the book, they talk about how they're married. It's unclear. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Naomasa. Musaka plays one of the secondary coaches for Kojima. He previously appeared in Tetsuo and went on to this big prolific acting career. You'll totally recognize him if you look him up on IMDb and you've watched Japanese films. Naota Takenaka plays the second coach for Kojima as well. He previously appeared in Hiroko and cast Tsukamoto in 119, a.k.a. The Quiet Days of Firemen, which was one of Tsukamoto's earlier, more prominent acting gigs. And I'm going to just briefly touch on this, but starting with Hiroko and like the early 90s, basically post-Tetsuo, Tsukamoto, Shinya Tsukamoto would begin to act in other people's films too a fair amount. And there's a lot of the different actors and directors who have worked with him talk about him as there's Shinya Tsukamoto, the director, and Shinya Tsukamoto, the actor. And as an actor, he's like an exceptional actor. He's very attentive and listening and very serious and all of that insanity that you see as him, like, as the metal fetishist, like, he can put that aside, he can be whoever he needs to be and do his job. And because he does both roles with, like, the same kind of passion and intensity and attention to detail, he's able to direct his actors in a way of, like, knowing what it is to be an actor and the sort of fear that comes with that and difficulties and everything else. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of auteur actors also tend to be in their movies and are able to connect with their actors on that level because they know what it is to act and it's easier for them to convey like how to work a certain scene. Sure. Although at the same time it's interesting because he talks about both, especially as it relates to this movie, but in his movies prior to this too, part of what Tsukamoto does first is he casts people and this kind of starts a lot of like his casting people with not very much experience and he doesn't give them directions on how to be the character. He just says like, this is the plot or this is the loose thread or whatever and you need to develop this yourself and then I'm going to kind of guide you through either vague or direct, you know, hints at what I'm That's looking for. Yeah, so it's like he, you know, he's a very like, he has a very unified vision of what he wants and he knows it, but he allows people to like draw the conclusions themselves so they can pull out the performances they think he wants, but are also true to themselves and their characters to create like a more genuine film and genuine characters and stuff in the, in the movies, which I think really works in most of his stuff. So apparently, uh, Hideo Kojima does something similar. I recently watched a interview with Norma Reedus about, He's just speaking about working with him, and he said something similar about him. But yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah. So Koichi Wajima plays the head coach for Kojima and at the boxing school that the film is centered around, who is actually a retired professional boxer and an undisputed lightweight middle 
light middleweight champion of the world, winning both WBC and WBA titles. I assume those are important. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a boxer, but he's fucking cool as shit. He's got, like, glasses that have flip-down sunglass shades, and he has, like, oh. one flipped up and the other flipped down. I always, I always wanted those. He doesn't really say almost anything. It's perfect. So, the film story is basically Suda, like, they used to know each other in high school, and Kojima sees Suda when Suda has to, like, walk past the box in school on a weird route that's, you know, unusual outburst from his normal life. And he kind of, like, follows him home, sort of, more or less, and starts to insinuate himself in his life, and immediately takes a shine to Suda's fiance, who's this very, like, unconventionally hot woman, and, like, Hizuru's character is both incredibly punishing, but, like, this very liberated female, which maybe says something about me, but also, like, is kind of, she's kind of shitty in her own way, but... Everybody's going through these major upheavals. It's it's fucking awesome. Beard Daddy approves. And 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 like so he tries Kojima tries to fuck her and then like Suda gets super jealous and then this rivalry starts between them and so Suda joins Kojima's gym so that he can train to eventually fight him in the ring. Meanwhile, Hizuru goes between the two of them, originally staying with Suda but then moving in with Kojima, but it's like not a sex thing until it is and then stuff happens and it has a more like real plot in that way but it's basically about like two guys overcoming like one dude who's all feared up even though he's a boxer living in this physical world like he's still terrified of his own things and Suda who's this like classic beaten down salary man who's just like accepted this fate of like modernization and whatever starts to rebel against it and rediscovers himself through this violence and then Hizuru does her own thing where she starts getting these piercings and and gets a tattoo and does a bunch of other shit and whatever and has two men who are like constantly physically vying for her affection but like she she's stronger than both of them and goes through her transformation first and it's like this whole incredible thing all with like insane over the top violence like you wouldn't fucking believe like, blood splurts that make lady snowblood look chill as fuck like it's it's nuts this is everything i want it is so cool and it's funny cuz like i think of rocky and other boxing movies which have these like intense physical parts but the hyperkinetic editing of Tetsuo the Iron Man and that kind of shit and bullet ballet is like what they do but with boxing. You saw a little bit of boxing in bullet ballet but like this movie is just and it's all like Chu Ishikawa's music so it's these like fucking like just like driving rhythmic like oh my god. So I, w- I was gonna bring this up when we got to bullet ballet but I guess I'll touch on it now since we sure. were talking about the way he films and the kinetic energy he has when he does those action sequences and there is a problem I have with a lot of directors nowadays where they film an action sequence and they move the camera around to make it feel like it's even more action but you can't really see anything and it you don't really feel that punch you do yeah but Sugimoto was able to do that and make it work yeah you know what I mean it doesn't look like a mess of camera swings and violence the way he moves the camera with the violence but also like against the violence works very well. Yeah. It's it's interesting because it's one of the things I hate about Jason Bourne movies is that yes. they go so hard on that that like what should be incredible fight choreography turns into this like fast mess where like nothing feels like it has any weight or depth and it sucks to watch and it makes me feel seasick. 
Whereas Tsukamoto does that. Sometimes he does it overly much. And like in this movie, it's a nice mixture of like clear hits and then those types of faster things. It really goes between the two. Bullet Ballet, I think, has strikes that really nice balance. And then I would say, again, we talked about it before, but Tetsuo the Bullet Man like does not pull it off. Like He goes so yeah. over the top yeah. on the shaky cam that you're just like, I don't even fucking know what I'm watching. It makes me think of 28 Weeks Later, which is like one of the most physically hard to watch films I've ever seen. I was just like, are you like I'm gonna have a goddamn seizure? But in Tetsuo I think it's also it also adds to the fact that part of that movie is supposed to make you severely uncomfortable. Yeah. And those camera swings and that movie makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, they fucking do it. So yeah, so as I said, it the movie was supposed to start at the beginning of nineteen ninety four. He doesn't even have a script. Like they just have a general idea and he's like, I'm gonna totally develop the script, but it's not kind of going the way they expect. I have a boxing movie. What happens in it? I don't know yet. Yeah, so they the other thing is that they don't have the shooting locations they hope to have secured at this point. So everything gets pushed back and they don't start shooting until June. But the cool part about it is Koji just throws himself into the gym and starts training even harder in order to get prepped for the role, but without like having the, the whole plot written out or like any lines or anything to practice. Like He's just going to the gym constantly. Then they throw themselves into the photography and filming and immediately start with all the dialogue-heavy parts of it. And Koji hasn't acted in a film since he was, like, a middle schooler. So he's feeling very nervous, and Shinya's just, like, doesn't say shit to him, basically, and is, like, just act good, but doesn't even say that. Do good. So the pressure's, like, on him huge, and he talks about the only time, he one time he forgot his lines when they were doing a scene, and it was just, like, immediately the tension was at maximum level, and it was like, Shinya didn't even fucking say anything. It was just like, now I'm like, I'm gonna get shot, like, leaving this thing. But they got through it, and and the other cool part about it, too, was the, the... Kizuru, the woman who plays her, was didn't have a ton of experience, and Tsukamoto picks her a lot for the look. Like he has this mental idea of what this character needs to look like, and his female characters for the next like, four movies all have this element of they have very striking features and looks. You know, the the woman who plays Chisato in Bullet Ballet, which we'll talk about shortly. She's totally, she's got this kind of like nymph thing, but she's. It's like strange looking a little bit, like a very attractive, but like a mix of the '90s nymph esque female ver- with like a little bit of goth thrown in there. Yeah, but all with you know, it's like minimal details for maximum characterization. One of the things I really like is this in in the movie Hizuru, like she winds up even putting metal bars in her arm and stuff, which all feels like a little bit of a throwback to. Tetsuo but like I said she goes through her transformation and then she figures out what she wants and then takes all that stuff out it's like we have to watch this together because I really enjoyed Bullet Ballet but you will fucking love Tokyo Fist like yeah it's a movie that I watched it once and I'm like this has to be a five-star movie like this this I don't even know how else I can rate it because it is so obviously exceptional it still has some of the stop-motion stuff and that might be my only complaint because it's really cool but feels like an unnecessary retread of some of what he did in Tetsuo. But it works with the film and it just has this like th- the level of like sweat and extreme blood and violence and like flexing like Koji. It, it just his the physicality he brings to the role as somebody who's actually a boxer and everything is fucking awesome. And then for Sukamoto or Shinya's character. 
they they had him work with Kochi Wajima, who plays the boxing coach. They based all of his moves off of his like real fighting style, and so it's like real brutal boxing. Like, eh, eh. and the other thing that he mentions in here that I thought was really funny was like he wanted to do it in black and white, but then he was like, "But the world already has Raging Bull, which is the perfect black and white <laughs> boxing movie." So he's like, "Fuck it, I'm doing it in color." And um, the other thing that the movie spends a lot of time doing, especially in the middle section, is Koji stays, or Kojima, whatever, he's living in this, like, rundown house in the middle of all these skyscrapers that literally was demolished right after they finished filming, and they couldn't even film, like, a lot of it. It was all illegal, like, squatting. They don't have rights for, like, 90% of these scenes, like, where they're shooting, except for the boxing place and whatever. But there's tons of stuff that is just Shinjuku, like, in Tokyo. All of these, like pulled out big shots it's this uh time lapse photography all of this just showing the city and then showing the sweat inside the boxing studio or in the boxing ring or or like the sex or the violence or whatever and then cutting back to these alleyways and these these er, and early in the film too like the fucking huge apartment buildings like it's just all of this abstract line stuff and the coolest part about it one of the coolest things there's a shot where it's Shinya and it's behind him is these two elevated highways. I literally took the same picture the last time I was in Japan. I was in the exact area. I have an exact picture of it just without Shinya Tsukamoto in it. I was like, I've fucking been there. It's just so cool. His juxtaposition in this movie, of all the films I've seen by him, is like easily the most effective of like... It's obvious in the one sense, but it's so fucking gorgeous and just this like constant like battle between the physical and then the sterile and the concrete and the urban is is fucking oh my god like I I, I have to check my gush because like it's gonna <laughs> like I woof it's getting a little moist in here yeah exactly so oh and the other thing he does that he, he did in Bullet Ballet too is he'll do tons of these like really sharp angle upwards of buildings that make you feel like you're trapped in the buildings, which is if you, if you go to Tokyo, it's like how you fucking feel. You're just surrounded by infinite. They're everywhere. Yeah. So, uh, the film goes on to the turn film festival and a Japanese Sundance film festival offshoot in November of 1995. And it fucking crushes it at both film festivals and winds up on tons of top 10 lists of like film critics and magazines and stuff in Japan. The biggest being Kinema Jumpa, which is like the oldest film Japanese film magazine puts it on their top 10 list. And they're normally super conservative with super conservative like type films. And they said like, this is one of the best. And they named Koji as the best new actor in Japan cinema period. And his career then takes off and he becomes an actor in his own right. But it, <laughs> I don't think it's meant to be that underhanded, but I guess I don't know how else you could say it. Like, Shinya's like, but I always told him he should just probably stick with cooking, but <laughs> I don't know if he means that as, like, it's a better stable job or what he means exactly, but anyways, it's, uh, it's fucking amazing. Like, I had heard from a lot of people, if you love all the other movies you've talked about, because I've seen, like, his mid and late period stuff, and I've seen his early stuff, they were like, watch Tokyo Fist, what are you doing? And I watched it last night, and I was like, even in a shitty shitty subtitles and a bad quality rip i was like this movie's fucking amazing so go check that one out i mean obviously watch tetsuo but watch tokyo fist next it is it is like i don't care about boxing at all it was so cool i was like oh fuck so yeah i'm not even a huge fan of rocky but i'm in it to win it yeah no absolutely so so yeah so we get that we get tokyo fist tokyo fist fucking rules
so now, post the theatrical and the the film festival releases for Tokyo Fist, Shinya's at this like next level, even above where he was at with Tetsuo, because he's made a slightly more mainstream film, but it's also one that was like really did well in Japan for its actual theatrical release. It's respected by the critics. It's, it gets everything you would want your film to have. So he's got, again, he's got options and everything else, but he winds up in this essentially like midlife crisis after finishing it because it's 1996, 97. He's like hitting his, he's basically cause he was born 1960. So he's like 35, 36, 37, 38 as we get into bullet ballet territory and he realizes he's kind of at this place where it's like, he's working his ass off all the time. He's still doing voiceover stuff and some other jobs here and there to make ends meet and, and have additional money for his movies. He's still doing the voiceover stuff, some commercial work. And he's just like working really hard, like all the time. Right. And is at that place where now I know he got married and was married by the early 2000s, but there's not a lot of information about his personal life, even in the book, beyond as what it, how it relates to the films, which I think is partially because he's probably a pretty private person. So if I can find out more of that info between now and the next two episodes that it looks like we're going to have to do, I will certainly include it. But anyways, I don't think he's married at this point, And he's just kind of like, wow. Like, and he talks about this other famous commercial director who was, uh, some years his senior who wound up committing suicide at 37, who was famous for his like super happy and like upbeat commercials. But apparently privately he was fucking miserable and he kills himself. And he's like, I'm at that same age now when he starts doing bullet ballet, like what the hell is my life? Like, I love what I do, but also, you know, feeling very like waking up with the TV on, like in an empty apartment, thinking I'm kind of lonely and yeah. all that kind of shit. Now I'm sad. Thank you, Dick Fetter. Yeah, right. Well, I didn't think this movie was particularly uplifting, so. Yeah, but sad movies make me feel good. Yeah, I don't know. Tokyo Fist made me feel good because it was like, for all of its violence, it was about. Like, Cell transformation. Yeah, exactly. And I thought. Bullet Ballet was kind of like that, but it was also kind of... Way more nihilistic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're going to get into that in a second. But he was interested in the whole delinquent youth thing. And the 90s really saw a big uptick in movies like this, just in the same way that the 1960s did. In the 60s, it was all about like that post-war reformation building. Like, you know, where do the youth sit today? Especially the generation who came after the war ended and had no context for what that was like. So you're getting all of the Japanese new wave out of that. And a lot of like these early delinquent youth films, um, uh, the cat house rock films that make Okaji partially got famous for right. are part of that. And there's some other film series like that, but those were all the studio day shit. Now it's like the nineties stuff. And the movie that I'm going to talk about in a little bit, as it relates to this, that kept making me think of was all about Lily Chow Chow, which have you seen that? Did we watch that together? It is one of the most, like, gut-wrenching, horrifically brutal, like, oh my fucking god, look at the youth of today, Japanese films. Like, it's like uh, it's probably why we never watched it, because it's, like, fucking depressing. But, anyway, he winds up getting mugged outside of a train station on his way home from work by a bunch of delinquent youths. And he's like, I'm super interested in this. 
it's all post you know bubble bursting in like 1991-92 era japan and there's this big uptick in like seemingly senseless crime committed by like youths in shibuya and everywhere else so he spends a year writing the script for bullet ballet and is, is basically wants to sort of deal with his own midlife crisis in part by observing the crisis of the youth who are like trying to also grapple with their place in the world. So Shinya Tsukamoto's character is largely autobiographical. His The character in the film is named Goda. He's like a commercial director who's successful. But at the very beginning of the film, his girlfriend commits suicide basically while she's on the phone with him or like hangs up and shoots herself like while he's on the way home to see her. It's like a pretty unhappy way to start. Kirina Mano plays Chisato, who was a 19-year-old model with little acting experience. She's very similar in some ways to Hizuru from Tokyo Fist, although I thought her character, her transformation was much more subtle in some ways in this movie and like a darker version of that character. Uh, Tatsuya Nakamura plays Idei, Idei? which is the guy or I'm sorry, who is the head of the, is the older guy who runs the gang essentially. Right. And Takahiro, Takahiro Murase plays Goto, who is the sort of younger head of the, the same group and like the other main character, I would say more than Tatsuya Nakamura was. But he's also like super conflicted cause he's both a street tough, but also wants to have a life beyond just beating the shit out of salary men. Well, I think he's, I guess we could get into it a little bit later, but he is a sal- like partially a salary man, but hates it because of it. And then there's the other character who mentions that he'd rather do that than what they're doing. Right. Tatsuya Nakamura, though, I just want to mention, because he was the drummer for Blanky Jet City, uh, which is like a cool Japanese rock band. And he, again, was picked because even though he was an untested actor, Shinya felt confident that he had what it took to make like to be in the movie and had a really cool look that he thought would work and he's gone on to do a bunch of other really cool movies since because he is talented and one of the things i liked he talked about was that nakamura would have these interesting gestures that would relate like to his character and he thought like oh this is just improv and then they would do take after take after take and he would maintain the gestures and be like this is a guy who really has tried to develop this character and he has like tops 10 minutes of screen time in the whole film but he he fucking nails it everything he's in you're like oh hell yeah and like you said he looks like the villain he looks like the guy who plays shang sung in mortal Kombat, but he also looks like every japanese bad dude as you said any asian dude in any action 90s flick oh yeah totally in america yeah like he's the dude who like comes out and the white action heroes like oh, I gotta take on this guy, and this dude does, like, a bunch of, like, fucking spin kicks and <laughs> air punches, and then ends it all with, like, oh! Yeah, exactly. His brother Koji's also in the film as the head of a different gang, and uh, originally he was in it significantly more, but his scenes got cut out after the first version that they did of the film. No slight to him, just it was more of a bouncing of the pacing and whatever. But the film was largely inexperienced actors, and it, it worked out really well. So the the crew for the film was split between seasoned members at this point who now were a lot of them a lot older than the un the inexperienced people that had joined on. These people were from like some of them were even holdovers from the original Tetsuo or Hiruko 
and and the like so they were you know there was this growing age gap and it was like the movie was happening on a bunch of different levels not just the film itself and Shinichi Kawahara came back who had been on Tetsuo and Hiruko he was the assistant director and also like the assistant to Yatsu and Tetsuo too um one of the things I found out I didn't know was that he started Der Eisenrost with Chuishikawa, which is like a famous band that Chuishikawa did concurrent with his scoring of Shinya Tsukamoto films. I desperately want to get their one like live album that's just a bunch of different performances, but they they have this like Einstrat Nurzbalten type style with you know whatever Japanese differences and shit, but they're like super famous, even though I've basically never really heard most of their stuff. I've heard like a couple tracks on YouTube and via file sharing and whatever, but that's super cool. I'm going to jump into that in one sec. Uh, but he came back and was helping as both assistant director and doing some other stuff with the film. Sukamoto wanted to have a more documentary look. They still often did shooting without permits and he tried to get it to be, you know, you get that shaky cam a little bit in there, but it was more of, like, trying to just capture it as if, like, you were there. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I felt. Yeah, so they used a lot of cool tricks to get shots in restricted locations, especially the stuff with the train stations. They weren't allowed to shoot there, so they would, like, shoot on a bridge and then do a super zoom-in shot of people, which is partially why it was so shaky. Uh, and they used this, like, cool trick. There's a whole scene where Chisato is like leaning on the edge of the platform and basically like her boots are scraping as a train passes like scraping the train obviously they can't really do that because she would die and it would be bad but they did like some cool camera tricks to do like this hard zoom that flattens everything to make it appear as if she really is cool yeah leaning against the train as it passes uh it was also the first movie since phantom of regular size to not have stop motion as part of it yeah so uh, part of the big part of the film is that after the main character's girlfriend kills herself, uh, he the main character becomes obsessed with getting a chief special, which is the gun that she uses to kill herself. And he spends a lot of the early half of the movie trying to get the gun. Snub nose thirty eight. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Sukumoto was influenced by a book written by Tetsuya Suda about guns and juvenile delinquency. And in that book, they talk about how. Often people go, if they don't go to the gangs, to go to foreigners. So it's not like a racist thing. It's just, I mean, it's, I guess, partially cultural racism, whatever. But in Rapungi, especially area of Tokyo, there's a like enclave of foreigners and has been since the occupation. And so you see them like talking to white guys and Asian or like other Asian people and black guys and whatever, trying to get this gun and like, you know, basically having a bunch of bad experiences trying to get this gun because he's a fucking moron and you know it's one of those things if you're in the criminal world you like learn the do's and don'ts and where to get stuff and if you're just some mook like who's an obvious mark then it's like that scene in always sunny where they go to try to buy crack yeah exactly so <laughs> two hundred dollars i'll have one crack rock please but he wanted the film to be more realistic which i think he definitely accomplishes like there's still those hyper stylized moments those like clear Shinya Tsukamoto-isms in the film, but it definitely does feel way more down-to-earth in some ways than everything he did before this. Even Tokyo Fist, which is, like, about boxing, which is a very real down-to-earth thing, but with the stop-motion stuff and the super extreme 
blood gushing violence and like facial wounds and shit that they do in that. You, which when you see, you'll be like, oh fuck. Uh, it's yeah. Uh, I think they accomplished that. Chewie Shikawa again. He's back on it. He gets a rough edit of the film and starts working on the music. And one of the things they talk about too is like he would have trouble. Like they both speak Japanese, obviously, but he would explain music with like his own mindset and Shinya Tsukamoto would explain the music he wanted from like a visual director mindset. And so sometimes what he would get back from Ishikawa was totally missing the mark. And uh, Shinichi Kawahara stepped in to sort of like help with these communication issues and try to get it sorted through right. for both of them, which was like generally successful. And his sort of real pride was that the way that the, the closing track that Chuo Ishikawa did was like, he sort of explained to him what he thought Shinya Tsukamoto wanted from like really vague directions from Shinya Tsukamoto and then he fucking nailed it and then they didn't have to redo it and he was like nice got one fucking right. score <laughs> so apparently editing though was extremely difficult and like I said they took 10 minutes after the out of it after the first screening but it took him like ages to get it whereas Tokyo Fist was like he edited it super quick he knew exactly what he wanted this was a movie where he still feels like he could go back and re-edit it. A big part of that is that it got a lot of criticism for people feeling like it was a little alienating and too autobiographical. And also where he wanted to try to create a divide and show the differences between the youth and the older generation. It all just turned into this like ultra nihilistic morass, essentially. Yeah. And there isn't any kind of difference. Um, the film gets premiered at the 1998 Venice Film Festival. It's the first time his film is in, like, the top tier because there's Berlin, there's Venice, and... Shoot, what's the other one? Um, is it Sundance? Oh, I can't think of the other one. But anyways, that's, like, one of the best, like, the biggest deal film festivals in the world. It goes... It kind of gets mixed reviews. These two different French magazines write about it, but Le Monde writes this really positive review and a really long one at that after seeing it there and it starts this whole bidding war for his film rights in France which eventually end with Studio Canal getting all the rights for Bullet Ballet and all his films prior and like starts what is generally a very lucrative video rights sale for him in France. The French love Japan and I'll give them credit for that. They do appreciate the Japanese They work. just stole that from us. Yeah. I think they actually beat us to it. They were... No. Okay wrong so that's all the technical aspects of it but this is the film we watched tonight so what do you want to what do you want to say oh, about god that, there's man? so much yeah i mean just you talking about everything you did and you know go to the main character whose girlfriend shoots herself and he has this like totally nihilistic like how am i supposed to live in such a terrible world and then the girl's name who i already forgot because it takes anything Chusato. Sure. It, anything in Japanese takes me like a few watches to yeah, remember yeah. the names. But they have this connection because it's the old version of like how am I supposed to live in this terrible world versus the young version of how am I supposed yeah. to live in this yeah. terrible world. And also as an American who could go out and buy a gun within a couple days <laughs> in one of the harder states to get one in. Yeah, right. To see a movie where they from a country where it's very hard to get a gun. It's 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 a very interesting juxtaposition for me. Yeah. 
because we I've I've owned guns. You know, I I've owned a lot of guns at one point yeah, in my life. I've shot a fair amount of guns. Some too. of them legal, some of them not. Yeah. None of them were hard for me to get. Yeah. And to watch this man run around for so long of a movie and the way <laughs> I've been that dude who's been like, yeah, dude, here's some money. And then they make the switch, and you open the thing, you're like, this isn't what I wanted. Yeah, this is- it's literally how I got sober, was getting ripped off for cocaine a second time in Philadelphia, because I got the old switcheroo of baking soda, and was like, well, I can't snort this. Yeah, and just, there is good character development in it, and Goto, the way he changes throughout it, and how he's like this, he doesn't want to be the salary man. He wants to be the street tough, whereas Goda almost wants to be the street tough, but is the salary man. Yeah. And it just works really well between those three characters, between Goda, Goto, and the girl. They almost all mirror each other in a way that's done really well. And the action in it, I just, I, I fucking love. And the dialogue was so well done. The scene where they're back at Goda's apartment and... Goda's talking about his girlfriend who killed himself and he's like, you fucking did this. Oh, yeah. We all did this. There are so many people don't don't even realize they helped contribute and then to it, this. And then it cuts to like a like a widescreen shot of Shinjuku and then like cuts back into the apartment and it's just like, like yeah, the whole city's guilty. Yeah, it's just so good. Yeah. And I, 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 and I just want to cut in. As far as dialogue goes, the thing that stood out for me was like, you know, in a dream, you can kill a person and get away with it, and Tokyo is just one big dream. Yes, I was like, I know. fuck. I was like, oh, fuck, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, give me more of them sweet, sweet, tasty lines. But even even the girl in it, she has that moment where, you know, she's this nihilistic, I want to die, but I'm not going to do it myself type girl. And then she breaks into his apartment and, like, lives a little bit of his life for a second and is really enjoying it. Then all of a sudden she's like, this fucking sucks. Yeah. And the ending is very, like, almost old-school Japanese samurai film, where it's, like, the two characters that have been through so much shit together, it's like, well, we're gonna part our ways now and literally run off in separate directions. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good pull. Yeah, I, totally. That is so, like, a classic samurai thing. And it's... Yeah, I thought it was impressively... Like, there was... There's no... To me, there was there was transformation, but it wasn't catharsis. Like yeah, it no, was, definitely not. <laughs> and the like the thing that you can say, I or at least I would say for every Tsukamoto film I've ever seen, including Tetsuo the Bullet Man, which is like easily the most contentious, although we haven't watched the Nightmare Detectives, which I hear are a real mixed bag, but are they're visually always striking. Like they look fucking great. And even if it's like some of the stuff is cringy, you're like this just looks awesome and I'm in it just to fucking win it for the visuals and this movie crushes it. And again, shitty rip, mediocre subtitles and it was still like, fuck, man, this looks so good. And like the alleyways, the the underpasses, all that kind of... Oh, the, and I didn't even mention, oh my God, in Tokyo Fist, these underpasses that they shoot in are like fucking insane. Yeah, it was... I was just there. The last like half an hour of the movie is fucking awesome. Like the whole thing is really good, and I really like the montages with the gun and the explosions and the video clips and stuff that that are in it. But the last thirty minutes is really, really, really brutal. And Goto's character, the younger guy, his whole 
like I want to be a street tough, but I'm not really willing to pull the trigger figuratively and literally feels very real and I really liked that aspect of it and it's sort of like just how fucked we all are kind of a thing and also like the the willingness of all the characters to to adopt this like nihilistic pathos of like nothing means anything or like we all like I just want to die or like accepting death as this inevitable thing that's coming soon is both Japanese, but also just, like, this, like, super angst that we all have to go through in our own special way, like, as people, like, which, that, to me, it may have been autobiographical to Tsukamoto, but I thought, at least as somebody who was wildly self-destructive for a long period of my life, extremely relatable, so I was just like, you know, and I, and I mentioned before, so there's this film called All About Lily Chow Chow, or Choo Choo, or Cho Cho, depending on how you want to pronounce it, but it's a movie about a fictional pop idol who basically forms the basis for... It's an examination of a variety of relationships in this relatively rural Japanese town and what these high school kids do to each other and how they grow up and try to like deal with basically adolescent teenage angst. And it it's real in the sense of like some of this stuff might be the worst version of things happening possible, but like those things do happen. And it's like a, a, what feels to be a documentary level look at like the real horrible things that Japanese kids can get up to in the same way that uh, children of God does that for Brazil in the seventies and eighties or other movies have done that in the United States. Like, I don't know, um, boys in the hood or whatever. I presume I've not seen it, but (laughs) you know, that kind of shit or like even, Minus the Disney ending of American History X or the partially Disney ending, like, you know, people in turmoil, people growing up and grappling with, like, do really bad shit that, like, changes their lives forever, like, commit acts of violence that, like, take lives and change theirs and all that. And this movie kept making me think of it, partially because I just was reminded of it earlier today, so I think it was, like, fresh on the brain, but... That movie is, like, way more unrelentingly bleak, although visually, like, a sumptuous feast for the eyes, which makes it, like, that much more fucking awful. And I would highly recommend our listeners to check that out if you want, like, a real gut punch of just, like, ultra-depressing teen shit. But, yeah, this movie pulls on those kinds of strings. And, yeah, the last, like, 30 minutes, I was just like, oh, fuck. Like, oh, fuck me. I gotta get this. I gotta get this ASAP, so. And the craziest thing is, like, honestly, the most important character in the whole thing is the gun yeah because of how what the gun did to Goda, how he ends up trying to get a gun when he finally gets a gun what he uses it for how the gun affects goto yeah. and how it affects their street gang because all of a sudden they don't have to do all of this crazy shit they just pull a gun on somebody and they get what they want yeah it's that immediately like transfer of power yeah which like in america is just like that guy's probably got a gun yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it, it is, it's it's true, and it kind of is, like, why, it kind of gives you an appreciation of, like, yeah, if this is such a big deal in Japan, like, it sh- we shouldn't be so desensitized here. <laughs> like, it's a little bit scary, and there are other m- movies in the, the U.S. that do that kind of same sort of nihilistic, senseless, like, gun violence stuff really well, and Children of God is another movie. Have you ever seen that? Yes. Okay, yeah, so, like, about Brazil and all that stuff, mm-hmm. That it's just, like... The level of gun violence in the movie and the normalcy that, like, all the characters get associated with it, like, it's it's fucking horrifying. I watched it once in college and was like, I don't ever need to see this again. Like, this is awful. Ugh, it's... Those are, those are, like, Snowtown-type movies where you're just yeah. like, ah, 
I feel terrible. I now. experienced that. Yeah, so so needless to say, yeah, I mean, so at this point you figure I've never seen Hiroko or Hiroku. I've seen Tetsuo, Tetsuo 2, Tokyo Fist, Bullet Ballet. All of these movies are like in that range of like 9 out of 10 to 10 out of 10 for me. Like there's part of it is they all stand alone in their own way even out of his own filmography, but also they all do something so like profoundly well and offer just like something completely different than most film experiences. Like I, I, I cannot fault his, his films at this point, you know? Yeah. And I mean, especially this movie, cause with the, the climate that we're in in America today, with all the things that we're going through as a nation, like this is like so much more poignant, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would say this is definitely nine out of ten for me. I I love this movie. This is a straight ten out of ten for me. I'd watch it again tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. So would I. There was a guy on Letterboxd who watched it every day for thirty days. Shit. I know. Yeah. He. Yeah. He. It was. I want to. I'm interested to read those thoughts, but also at the same time, I don't want to soil my own take on it. So, but we are going to wrap up now with 1999s. Gemini, which is one of, this is now we're hitting the period of like, I have not seen almost all of these movies. So vital being the exception strap in. Yeah. Now this movie, I am dying to see for a couple of different reasons and I'm going to get through it quickly and then we're going to wrap up and we'll be, we'll be coming back soon with more Tsukamoto info. So Gemini, 1999, 84 minutes, 35 millimeters, fucking color and color all day. Now, I can't speak because I don't... This book only covers through 2005. It covers through Vital. So what he has done for his movies since, like, I only know on a case-by-case basis, but I don't know about all of them. So as of that book being written, Gemini was one of only two movies that he did under contract with, like, other studios and not just doing it all himself, Kaiju Theater. So it was uh, Hiroku and now Gemini. Both of them came from Setic International, both of them to, through Toshiaki, Nakazawa, and coming off a of bullet ballet, he gets offered another chance to do a movie for Setic. He takes the chance for two reasons. First of all, he knows Setic and Toshiaki, and second of all, it's to do an Edogawa Ranpo story, which we've already talked about. Huge influence on him as a kid, continued influence on him through his early filmography, influence even on Hiroku, even though it was based on another author's work. And so this is like, oh shit. But immediately he starts like changing stuff and putting the Tsukamoto stamp on it. So it's about, it sounds like Dead Ringers, which I guess we haven't watched yet, the Cronenberg film. I started the other, I started it recently, but I didn't oh, get okay. a chance to finish it. Yeah, so it's about twin brothers who, one is uh, basically, the, the original story is the one is given everything by his parents and inherits everything. The other one's cast out and, with the dregs of society. And so basically in this film, the brother comes, the poor brother comes, throws the rich brother down a well, and the rich brother's forced to like basically try to get back to his position and prove that he was betrayed by his twin poor brother. Is this the Prince and the Pauper? Kind of, but not really. Like Or it's... sort of, oh, what was that other movie we watched? Um, fuck, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, Horrors of Malformed Men. Yeah. Yeah, it's yes, exactly. Well, it's Edogawa Rampo. It's probably the same story. Yeah. So yeah, totally good. Good 
yeah, I forgot that. So, um, yeah, so it's actually, I am sure it's the same story because they were both doctors. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, fucking shit. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I thought I was running this podcast. So anyway, so he starts changing stuff about it in order to make it his own movie, whatever, whatever. But Cedric International wants to do it as like 60 minutes or shorter. I spoke previously about Karn or Carney. It's got to be Karn, Carney by Gasparno and it's probably Carnet. Yeah, so that movie was very successful critically and financially even though it was like 38 minutes long, much to everybody's surprise. And they say we want you to do under 60 minutes and it's going to be a vehicle for Masahiro Motoki who was like a previous basically Backstreet Boy type boy band guy who is cutting his teeth in acting gigs and was pretty good. But they want. They were like, do whatever you want with them, dirty this shit up. But like, let's get fucking nuts. Pop idols and movies in yeah. Japan. Yeah, right. So, uh, and this is like not the first time he goes on to use. Well, it is the first time he uses like a full on pop idol. But he like crushes it with pop idols moving forward. So, so it's like okay, cool. But like, you've got a super limited time, like a couple weeks tops. You got a very limited budget, but we're gonna give you like really good extra help too. But, like, you've got all of these different criteria that are going to make this as hard as possible. So he's like, all right, sick, I'm down. And then Toho's like, yo, we want to show up and we don't want to give you any more money, but we're going to give you a full-on, like, domestic uh, release, but you need to make it a full-length movie. But we'll give you an extra couple weeks to film it. So he gets a full month to film the film, which by uh, Japanese film industry standards, they're, like, turning out movies in two weeks kind of shit. But... You know, he gets a month. Now, granted, this is 1998-9 era, so, like, you would think they would give him a little bit longer, but no. So he just has that. And the other reason, too, is Masahiro's schedule is, like, super brutal. And they bring in some other A-list people, and they all have very limited time to work on the movie. So they've got to turn this fucker out. So I need you to make a feature-length movie in 30 days. Yeah, exactly. So Sukumoto enlists the helps of Yohi... 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 Yohei, Yohei, sorry, Taneda for production design, Michiko Kitamura for costume design, who had previously worked with Masahiro Motoki both in the boy band capacity and acting capacity, but Tsukamoto knew her himself and had admired her work because when he worked at Ide Productions doing commercials, she had also been involved with some of his work and he was like, she's amazing, I totally want her as costume designer. And then Iseo... Suge as the makeup artist. The actors are Masahiro Motoki. He hires famous, like, high-fashion Vogue-style model Ryo as the main female character, Rin. And then Yasutaka's Tatsuzi as Yukio's father, Masako Motai as Shige, Rinji Ishibashi comes back, as the Beggar Monk, who's also in Tetsuo, Outrage Audition, a shitload of Takashi Miike films. Akaji Maro is Kakube, uh, Tomoro Toguchi, who's Tetsuo the Iron Man, yeah. as a patient, and Tadanobu Asano, whose name I cannot fucking remember, to save the life of me, who plays Kakihara and Ichi the Killer and yada yada yada, has a bit part. And then like he's got a manga artist in there and a bunch of other people. This movie is filled to the brim with characters the list could go on ad nauseum. I couldn't even find half their credits online, but like apparently he was just like bringing them all in. 
Everybody gets to be in it. I cannot really talk about the plot more than I already have because I've I didn't even read all of the book because I really want to see this and I don't want to spoil it for myself. So I am like super stoked to watch this movie. Uh, but it, the production thing is interesting. So it's immediately this hellish gauntlet to get it done, and then like two weeks in, the flu fucking hits like half of the cast and crew. He loses all of his assistant directors except for Shinichi Kawahara, who is his first assistant director, but working in office, doing other stuff, and like as the intermediary between the the big studios and everything else. Without the assistant directors, he has to deal with some of the other big people like Hidamura directly and she and he like bump heads constantly because he's got some ideas about how he wants things to look and she's the costume designer and is like yeah 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 but also I'm doing this and it makes an incredible film and eventually it all works out but she's much like Kei Fujiwara in the sense of she deeply cares too and has strong opinions and so they wind up having to make compromises which is not necessarily always Sukumoto's strong suit but he talks about like all of this considered, he still wound up with what he thought to be an incredible looking film and a surprisingly uh, effectively flowed film. Like everything seems to come together, even though it's full of like tons of visual, like or I should say costume anachronisms and stuff like that, and like huge deviations from his original vision. But it still comes together to create this like just what they keep describing is a very expensive looking film, like a crazy period piece on acid kind of a thing. And it just sounds like so fucking cool. And Rio who plays the main chick, like she's got this very striking look and this crazy hair. And I'm like, Oh, I want to fucking see this so bad. So it comes together. Well, it has its theatrical opening September of 1999 at 84 minutes long. Because of Toho, it's got fucking billboards and Ginza oh, yeah. and all this shit. It's Toho. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's, like, big deal. And he's, like, talking... Sukumoto talks about, like, nothing cracked him up more than just seeing, like, the big, boom, Toho logo at the beginning <laughs> of the film. Uh, the I know those waves. I know those rocks. Yeah, so one of the worst parts about it, though, was that he brought in a lot of people from the Kaiju Theater to help make it because they had to do so much in so little time. And they tied the company up with all this shit to the point of like the company almost went bankrupt and had this movie been a complete flop they would have like he would have had to close kaiju theater and done what i don't know but they happily were able to kind of get it all together but even though toho was producing it and all the rest and distributing it they didn't get any more money so like he couldn't even pay a lot of his people or barely pay them and the movie sold it premiered at Venice and uh, Motoki and Rio came out with Tsukamoto to promote it at the film festival. The rights sold for way more than their previous films because Toho was in part backing the negotiations, but like all that extra money went to Toho. It didn't go to them. So yeah. they didn't see any benefit from that. And that is Gemini. I'm super stoked on this film. I'm hoping I get to watch it between now and the next episode so I can give like a quick little synopsis, but Yeah. So we just covered from 1989, 1988 through 1999. I hope that you have been illuminated and and given a new interest in the filmography of Shinya Tsukamoto beyond Tetsuo. And I think realistically, we're going to have to do two more episodes. We'll probably do the next one two weeks from now and then have a break, come back and do the last bit. 
That's what I anticipate. Probably, because I'll probably be in the hospital next time we record. Well, next time at... We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a pleasure. I hope you guys enjoyed it and continue to enjoy it. And uh, that's all for me. Yeah, you guys seem to be liking part one, so get ready for part three and four. Yeah. And we're enjoying it, so that's, that's really cool. all that matters, right? I guess so. Yeah, you're not I don't us. do it for the accolades, so... Yeah, so uh, you know where to find us. Facebook, Motel Hell Podcast. We're on the Instas at Motel Hell Podcast. We're on the Gmails at Motel Hell Podcast. We are on the SoundCloud at Motel Hell Podcast. If you have iTunes... Rate, review. Rate, review. If you know someone who has an iPhone, grab their phone. Rate, review. Right now. Rate and review. Subscribe. Subscribe. All right. Email us kisses. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, and later, nerds. Later, nerds.